So please open your Bible or your apps to John chapter 1. This is the second week of our new series, and we're going to invite Natalie up here to read the scripture. This is, this is God's word from John 1, 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water among you, stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remained, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Thanks, Natalie. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good? Uh, If I've not yet had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City. And yeah, as, as... Pastor uh, Doug, pastor slash comedian Doug said a minute ago, uh, we're going through the Gospel of John. We just started this last week, and uh, frankly, we're going to be in the Gospel of John for a good long time. We are, as it stands right now, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 sermons uh, to go through the Gospel of John. And because we want to take our time and we want to look closely at the words of Jesus and see what he said about himself and what he said about what he came to do. We will take breaks. We'll have a break at Advent. We'll have a break probably around Easter time. And, you know, we do some different things here and there. But for the majority of the next good long while of the life of Sound City Bible Church, we'll be in the Gospel of John. And, uh, yeah, week two. So, let's just dive right in. And we're talking about a different John. So, there's John the apostle who wrote the book. But today we're talking about John the baptizer. John, sometimes you probably hear him called John the Baptist or John the baptizer. I'm going to use the word baptizer because for some of you, Baptist evokes other images about not getting to go to the school dance when you were growing up. And so I'm going to, I can, and I'm allowed to make those kinds of jokes because I went to Baptist uh, elementary school for many, many years. And that's the only way I know how to tie a necktie today is because of that Baptist elementary school. Had to wear one every day, which is great for fourth graders uh, who like to wrestle and choke each other. So with, with that said, so John, John the Apostle who wrote the book, J.A., and then John the Baptizer, J.B., that doesn't work. So just try to, try to keep up. We're mostly going to be talking about John the Baptizer today. But let me do this. Let me pray before we do anything else, and we'll get to work here on these verses. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to gather together like this to open the scriptures, to open your word. God, I ask and I pray that whatever is going on in the lives of each and every person who's here, every woman, every man, every uh, young, old alike, God, we all have stresses, strains, distractions, frustrations, um, difficulties. God, I ask and I pray that for a moment we'd be able to lay those things aside. We'd be able to take even a deep breath right now and recognize, God, that you're with us here in this room. And I ask and I pray that you would cause these words that you inspired to be written, you'd cause them to bring life into our hearts and into our minds right now. I ask and I pray for myself that you'd guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth. 
And may we all grow more like Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Who is, if you think over your life, who's the greatest person that you've ever known? And that's a, it's kind of a loaded question. You know, who's the greatest person you've ever known? Because for some of you, when you think great, you think of somebody who's been important, uh, maybe somebody who is, by the world's standards, important or famous or rich or powerful. They've accomplished great things. Who's the greatest person you know? Uh, maybe you know somebody who's famous. Maybe you know somebody who's, you know, a really senior ranking somebody at Amazon or Microsoft or, you know, a lot of money that, you know, that they control. One, one of the things that the Bible challenges us to do is redefine our definition of, great, of greatness, right? So as I was thinking about this this week, greatness, who's the greatest person? I don't know if this is the greatest person I've ever known, but man, someone who was incredibly great. Um, his name was Jim, and he was the father of one of my high school friends. Actually, we're still friends. Her name's Susie, and um, she lives in Alaska, but we're still friends. And uh, her dad was, he was a pastor at the church, and he was this, he was not the like lead pastor or preaching pastor. He was an associate pastor, and he was just this guy that would go around and just collect people up and just love them really well and care for them really well. One of my other friends grew up without a dad, single mom raising two boys, and this guy, Jim, just kind of more or less adopted him, just would go take him out and go do, go do guy things. I think taught him how to drive, helped him get his driver's license, um, just loved him really, really well. And he was doing that with everybody. And when you think, like, who's this great person? Jim, Jim would never come to mind because he wasn't rich or powerful, but boy, was he ever influential. Remember when I was in college, um, actually, maybe while I was still in high school, he got a really aggressive form of cancer, and he fought it for a while, but eventually he passed away. And it was heartbreaking and tragic. And, and there, was the, there was an auditorium that was easily four times the size of this room here, maybe, maybe more. Standing room only. Just packed from front to back, side to side. Old, young, high, I mean, high schoolers, right? Like, any of you guys know high schoolers? Like, sometimes they're not the easiest people to love. And this guy, just, I mean, just high schoolers sitting down front at his memorial service. He was a great man. If we ask Jesus, who's the greatest person who ever lived? How do you think Jesus would answer? We don't actually have to speculate. He was asked that question in Luke chapter 7. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Speaking of the baptizer. And, and you know, of those born of women, who's that? Right? Like, we're not talking test tube kids here, okay? Maybe there's some really great test tube baby out there. Uh, those born of women, that's everybody, right? You're all born of women. John, the baptizer, Jesus said, he's the greatest one. He's the greatest person who ever lived. And what we're going to see is that John actually serves as a really good example for us to follow. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, he does one thing incredibly well. He gets the attention off of himself and onto Jesus. Would you agree with me that our culture promotes as a value self-focus? Would you agree with me on that? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really not that hard to prove. It's not that difficult to see if you start paying attention. It's all about yourself. I remember hearing a, a commercial on the radio that I just listened to sports radio. And I think it was for a, uh, I can't even remember if it was an auto parts store or something like that. And it literally, the tagline was such and such auto parts store where it's all about you. And I was like, well, I might want to buy auto parts there because that sounds awesome. <laughs> Thinking of really, I, can, like, I could use a shoulder rub while I'm trying to pick out my, you know, radiator fluid or something. I don't know. It's all about you. But the Bible calls us to get the attention off of ourselves and onto Jesus. And I would argue that no one does that better than John the baptizer. No one in the history of the world, does it better than him, which is why Jesus says that he's the greatest of those born of women. So let's look at John the baptizer, JB, our boy, and I'm going to show you seven things about him. And then actually in, in the line, I'll just tell you right now, in the line of him being a good example for us, I'm going to ask you about these seven things uh, when we're done. So let's start with John, and then we're going to turn the attention to ourselves and, and look at ourselves in the light of John the baptizer. And the first thing we can see about John is that he has a divine calling. John has a divine calling from birth. John has a divine calling from before his birth. It was not in today's passage, but if you remember last week in John chapter 1, verse 6, it says there was a man sent 
from God. So John is out in the wilderness. He's baptizing people at the Jordan River. He's got a message of repentance. He's starting to call attention to people to get ready for the Messiah. We're going to look at his role more in a moment. But you need to understand that he didn't just do this because he decided to do it. He had a divine calling. If you go over to Luke's gospel, the majority of chapter one in in Luke's gospel tells us the story of John the baptizer's birth. His, his father served as a priest, at least he did in the year that, that uh, John was born. His mother, a godly woman named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are somehow related. We don't exactly know. They might have been cousins. They might have been distant cousins, aunt, niece, something like that. We don't know exactly, but they're relatives. They're related. And so John, the baptizer, and Jesus are somehow related as well. An angel comes and gives this prophecy and gives this word from God to the father, Zechariah, and says, hey, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah argues. He's like, no, that's crazy. We're old. We can't have a son. And the angel goes, yes, you are going to have a son. Stop disbelieving me. And John goes, no, we can't possibly. And the angel goes, well, then you're going to be mute until the son is born. And John answered and couldn't say anything. And he goes home and he has to write it out. And Elizabeth's like, what is wrong with you? And also this is amazing. And so then she's pregnant and her husband can't talk, which kind of almost makes things a little bit more tolerable of being pregnant that old. And the, 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 that's, that's, I made that part up, but if you look hard enough, it's in there. And then the, and then the baby's born and there's this, there's this whole backstory, his divine calling. God knew This little baby, John, was going to grow up and be the baptizer. And so God had a plan on his life even before John was born. There was a divine calling on him. Second thing we can see, though, is John is unusual, okay? John is unusual. Now, we're going to look over in Mark for this to get a little bit more context because, you know, the, the John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, Jay-Z, uh, no, I can't use that. This John, author John, has a very unique perspective on John the baptizer. He doesn't really talk much about his, his backstory. He doesn't really talk much even about the scene. He just kind of assumes it and then explains theologically what's going on. So over in Mark, it says about John the baptizer that he was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, that's odd, okay? And it was, it's odd to us now. It's odd to them then. Actually, it's probably less odd to us now because people wear all sorts of weird things, right? Like camel's hair. You, anybody here have like a wool sweater? That's itchy enough. I can't imagine wearing a camel hair cloak for out in the desert, right? So this, he's doing something with this though. Is it just that he's a weirdo or is he doing something? He's, he's intentionally calling to mind with his clothing an Old Testament character. Anybody know? Elijah. Who said Elijah? Oh, very good. Yeah, okay. So uh, you have to take her out to dinner now. Okay, David? Good. She wins, the, she wins the, the, the Bible trivia gold star. You got the IOU for the five solas. I'll get you like some Reformation coffee or something. He's calling to mind Elijah. He's doing this on purpose. Now, Elijah, you got to go way back in the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Kings. Elijah was this prophet, and he, my, the, the kings hated him. Oh, they hated Elijah. Why? Because the kings were wicked, and Elijah kept telling them to repent, or judgment was coming. And Elijah dressed in a very unusual way. There's a story in Second Kings, one of the bad kings, Ahaziah, he sends some messengers out, his servants, and the servants come back, and they're like, hey, uh, king, this guy gave a message, says you're going to die. Uh, and the dogs are going to eat your body. And Ahaziah's like, I don't like that message. Who gave it to you? What kind of guy? And they're like, we don't know who it was, but he was wearing camel's hair. And Ahaziah goes, Elijah. And he knew exactly who it was just because of the clothing. Now there's, there's uh, intentional, intentionality on the part of John the baptizer. He's dressing this way to show you, hey, I've got a message. I want to call you to repentance. I, I'm going to be an irritant. I'm going to be unusual. I'm going to be odd. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And people noticed that. People thought that he was weird. There's a point where Jesus one time is talking with some of the religious leaders and they're like, Jesus, you're a drunkard and you go to these parties and people are drinking wine and you're a glutton and you eat too much. And Jesus is like, look, I come eating and drinking. You call me a glutton and a drunkard. John the baptizer comes eating nothing and you call him demon possessed. 
So his food, his food choices were so odd that people said he probably has a demon. That's why he's eating those bugs. And yet here you and I can go to Safeco Field and order a bucket of crickets while we watch the Mariners, you know, knock themselves out of playoff contention. Be honest. Any of you guys eat those crickets that they're serving at Safeco Field? Be honest. Come on. Nobody? Three of you? Yeah. Bill, you were probably throwing them at people, weren't you? Yeah, you were. That's what Elijah's eating. That's what he's dressing like, what he's doing. he's, He's very unusual. He stands out in his generation People are going with the flow. People are going about their business. And all of a sudden, John comes and he's, he's kind of, uh, kind of grates against them. Kind of, oh, what's, what's he doing? And it piques people's interest. Which leads to the third thing about John is this. He's fearless. If you look in verse 19, it says, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, like the big capital city, all the way out to the wilderness. Nowheresville, the sticks. And they're asking him, who are you? And then if you skip down to verse 24, it says they had been sent from the Pharisees. I'm jumping around a little bit in this because John, the author, jumps around a little bit as well. And so uh, try to follow me with with, with this. But here's, here's what's happening. You have to remember that in the context, there's two different groups of authority figures in Israel at the time. There's the Roman Empire, the Caesars. They ruled over the whole world. But they ruled through essentially puppet governments. So there was a Jewish government set up with a Jewish king, a guy named Herod, who was just a real dirtbag. And the Romans kind of ruled the Jewish people through this Jewish authority. And so what this is telling us, John is not just saying the Jews, like just the ethnicity, but he's telling us the Jewish leaders sent some people out. Who did they send out? Priests and Levites. Ooh, that's important. Uh, that's, that's the people who are officially in charge of temple worship. Every, every once in a while, like if I, if I get to know where somebody lives, I have this prank. I've never done it, but I have this prank that I want to do where I, 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 somebody, I met somebody, a friend of my daughter's, oh, I think some people that live right there next door to us go to your church. And I want to just walk up and knock on the door and just be there like, hey, just came to check and see if you're sinning. And I've never done that, but I want to. Because there's something, I know, it's terrible, but there's something about being a pastor or a, an official leader when you show up that carries some weight, Right? I've, I've asked if I could come visit somebody's community group, and they're like, why, are we in trouble? I'm like, no, I just want to come visit your community group. This is it's kind of like that. The, the, the priests and the Levites are showing up out in the sticks where John the Baptizer is doing his thing. And it's not just any priest. It's not just any people. It's the Pharisees. We're going we're gonna to get to know these Pharisees well over the next few months and, and maybe years here. But the Pharisees, let me read to you so you understand who the Pharisees are. One Bible dictionary puts it this way. They're, they're kind of described as maybe like one part political party, one part a philosophical school and a scholarly class, and then one part kind of a religious sect devoted to ritual purity. The Pharisees were noted most for their exact observance of the Jewish religion, their accurate exposition of the law, their handing down of extra-biblical customs and traditions. So, the life of the party. Absolutely. Just, you want these guys around, right? Their moderate position with regard to the interplay of fate and free will and their belief in the coming resurrection and angels. That's a little glimpse of the Pharisees. Here's the point. These people from the capital city with authority have the legal ability to make life miserable for John the baptizer. They show up. Who are you? You need to explain yourself. You got a permit to be baptizing people out here in the river, right? They, they have the authority to make life very miserable for him. What does John do? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll find a different spot. Oh, I'll shrink back. What does he do? He looks them dead in the eyes and he engages with them and he answers their question. And in the you know, words of the late great theologian Tom Petty, he's like, I won't back down. He, he, he absolutely stands his ground. He, he draws a line in the sand and says, you cannot come out and intimidate me and bully me with all your religious jargon and all of your uh, official authority because I answer to a higher authority sent from God. Which leads us to number four about John. He knows his role. He really has three tasks that he's called to do. To warn, to wash, and to witness. You like that? In honor of John the Baptist, how about three points that all start with the same letter? 
Warn, wash, witness. Warning people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Washing people, baptizing them in water so that they could express sorrow and remorse and repentance of their sins. But most importantly, to witness that there's a Messiah coming. He says, this is interesting. Look in verses 33 and 34. He says, I myself did not know him. He's talking about the Messiah, the Christ that's to come. I didn't, he says, I didn't even know who it was, but I'm paraphrasing here. He says, God told me to start baptizing. And when I see the Holy Spirit descend and remain on someone, that's the person who's the Messiah. And he's going to start baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. You guys remember the story? Jesus comes and he's baptized by John the the baptizer and he dunks him in the water. And and what happens? It says that the Holy Spirit appears in the form of of a what? of a dove, like a bird flies and settles on Jesus. And then what happens? This loud voice booms out, says, this is my beloved son and I'm well pleased with him. And so then John knows, John goes, oh, this is the one. This is the Messiah. I've just been out here baptizing people like, "Mm, nope, no Holy Spirit. Nope, baptize. Mm, Nope, not you. (laughs) Oh, there he is. I got him, right? That's kind of what John says. (laughs) the one on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. John knows his role. He doesn't get distracted with other things. He doesn't get pulled off task. He knows what God called him to do and he stays focused on those things. But even deeper than that, number five, John knows his identity. If you go back to verse 19, these priests and Levites, they come from Jerusalem. They start asking him all sorts of questions. Well, who who are you? And it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. That's three. He confessed. He did not deny. He confessed. Two positives and a negative. I am not the Christ. That's just a very biblical literacy way of saying he made it absolutely clear. It's not me. I'm not claiming to be the Messiah. I'm not saying that I'm the chosen one of God. I'm not saying that I'm to become the king and the leader. One is coming, but it's not me. Well, then they asked him, are you Elijah? Now, isn't that interesting? They didn't say, are you dressing like Elijah? Are you trying to make us think of Elijah? They said, are you Elijah? Why would they ask that question? If you want to go back in the Old Testament after we're done here, look up Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. It's literally the last verses In the Hebrew Bible, the last words inspired by the Holy Spirit before there was a period of silence before Jesus showed up. And it's talking about on this great and terrible day of the Lord, this this day where God's going to make all things right, God's going to make all things new. He says, before that day, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. And so the people were wondering, well, maybe, maybe this is Elijah come back from the dead. And the Bible doesn't want us to think in some sort of like reincarnation terms. What we're to think of is that John comes in the spirit of Elijah. It's actually funny. John says, no, I'm not Elijah, even though he's wearing camel's hair. And even though in Mark chapter nine, Jesus says, yeah, yeah, he's totally Elijah. John kind of, I don't know if John got that one wrong. I, I actually think that John is just trying to err on the side of humility. I really think that. Well, then they ask him, are you the prophet? That comes from Deuteronomy 18, where God's speaking to the people of Israel way long time ago. When they first came out of Egypt, he says, I'm going to raise up another prophet like Moses to speak to you. So they're all confused. Like, like, who are you? I mean, what a fundamental question, right? Who are you? And like, just at the depths of who you are, like, who are you? And he answers from the prophet Isaiah, says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's like, I'm not, I'm not anyone important. I'm not Elijah. I'm not a prophet. I'm certainly not the Messiah. I'm just a voice. That's just who I am. I'm a witness to the Messiah. And I'm just trying to yell for everybody to hear, pay attention to him. I love that John's identity is based on his relationship to the Lord. And I would say for all of us, identity is most fundamentally defined by our relation to Jesus. 
All the things you are, all the things you do, a a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, uh, an electrician, an engineer, a stay-at-home mom, whatever you are, whatever you do, those things might help kind of explain you, but they're not your identity. Identity has to do with our relationship to Jesus. He, He defines himself. Who are you? He defines himself by his relationship to Jesus. Which leads to number six, that John is humble. I love this. John answered them, and looking in verse 26, I baptize you with water, but among you there's someone standing who you don't even know. You don't even recognize him. And even though you don't know him, I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Okay, uh, Imagine that I was preaching and imagine I was, pretend like I was preaching, okay? Uh, Some of you are like, he's going to start any minute, right? And uh, imagine my shoe came untied. And let's imagine, you know, Hector, you're like, like, Aaron, your shoe's untied. Because you know me and you would probably text me and be like, your shoe's untied. I'm like, oh, can you just come down and tie it for me? What would the rest of you think? Like the awkward level in the room right there, right? Like, this is the most arrogant preacher I have ever seen in my life. You might already think that. I'm sorry. But if I'd said that, like, hey, come tie my shoe, what would you think? John the baptizer says, I'm not even worthy to tie the shoe of Jesus. And that's not some sort of false humility. That's not some sort of like, oh, you know, woe is me. I'm just a terrible person. That is truly understanding who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God. And understanding that we are all sinful and broken and in need of a savior. John is truly humble. Verse 30, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Think about the temptations to pride. Here's John, he's got crowds coming out. He's got the religious leaders and authorities coming out and paying attention to him. He's got a lot of opportunity for pride. What does he do? He puts Jesus up high on the throne and takes a lower seat. He's humble. And then the last thing, which is really throughout all of this, but John is a herald. He is a herald. He is proclaiming Jesus. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John knew that the great problem with humanity is not politics or lack of education or lack of money or or resources, as much as those things might be problems or devastating to communities or to people. The real underlying fundamental issue that humanity is dealing with is sin. And he knows that sin requires atonement. All throughout the Hebrew scriptures in the old, what we call the Old Testament, there's this practice of, of an animal being sacrificed, an animal having its blood spilled to cover over the sins of the people. Now, some of you hear that and you think, what a, what a barbaric, what a, what a strange practice. See, that's why I can't believe in God. Weird practices like animal sacrifice. But I would submit to you that our modern culture is more obsessed with the idea of shedding blood over wrongdoing than any of the ancients were. We spill it digitally on Facebook. You ever seen uh, somebody famous, a celebrity or someone do something wrong and then kind of get away with it? Have you, have you read the level of vitriol? Calling, literally calling for people's heads to roll and just the amount of, of anger that, and injustice. Now, some of that is obviously wrong, but some of that is actually based on a very good and healthy and normal understanding that wrongdoing needs to be atoned for. How is it going to be atoned for? Are you going to atone for it yourself? Are you going to beat yourself up? Are you going to do enough penance? Are you going to do enough good works? You've done wrong. You've sinned. You've done things. You don't live up even to your own standard of morality, much less to God's standard of morality. Be honest. How many of you have a standard of morality that you yourself fail to live up to? Okay? I think every human being, if they're intellectually honest, would say, yeah, I I know I'm a hypocrite. The Old Testament, God provided a way for people's sins to be atoned for through the sacrifice of a lamb, that blood would be spilled. But then God made a great promise that one day, 
No more sacrifices would need to be made. No more blood would need to be spilled because one was coming whose blood would be spilled to end the shedding of blood once and for all. The book of Hebrews tells us point blank, it's Jesus. And here John the baptizer knows it's Jesus. His blood will be spilled. The lamb of God, when he says the lamb of God, he means a sacrificial lamb that Jesus will die to atone for the sins of the world. And in him, we find our rest. And in him, we find our wholeness. And in him, we find our cleansing. And in him, we find our forgiveness. Amen? That the pressure's off of you. Quit trying to atone for your sins, John the baptizer would say. Repent and trust in the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. Isn't that amazing? And this is at the core of who John is and what he has to do. I love uh, this quote from our boy Charles Spurgeon, great English preacher from the 1800s. He says, If he, John, had been the most eloquent preacher of repentance, if he had been the most earnest declaimer against the sins of the times, he would never have less, nevertheless have missed his life work if he had forgotten to say, behold the Lamb of God. He did well when he baptized the repenting crowd. He spake nobly. I'm going to start using that. Spake nobly. When he faced the Pharisees and was a true hero when he rebuked Herod. But after all this, his chief errand was to herald the Messiah to bear witness to the Son of God. Now, after all that, I told you a moment ago that John serves as a pattern for us to follow. And so let me ask you, and you, you might even be objecting right now, saying, okay, hold on. John, John is a unique character. He's an oddball. He stands out. He's unique. Jesus said he was the greatest person who ever lived, at least those who were born of women. Yeah. I, 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 can't, I can't follow in his example. He had some really unique things. Well, maybe not so fast. Let's, let's, let's look at ourselves in the light of John. Do you know that you're called? Do you know that you are called? Now, sometimes in the Bible, when it uses the word called, it talks about being called to a job or being called to a role, and that's true. But more often, when the Bible uses the language of called, it's talking about being called into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Just one simple example, Romans 1.6 says, you, he's writing the letter to you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You probably did not have an angel visit your parents before you were born. If you did, I really want to hear the story. Please find me after the service is done. But you didn't have an angel visit your parents. But nevertheless, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, then before you were ever formed in your mother's womb, there was a divine calling on your life. Amen? And that can be even hard. It can feel prideful. It can feel pretentious. Something to say. To say, I am called. I'm called by God. But it's good news. Because it means that you didn't get into the family of God on accident. You didn't sneak in through a loophole. You didn't come in through a side door. No, you're called by God. You are called. Can we even just practice saying that once? Just, I am called. Let's say it. Ready? I am called by God who knows you, who loves you, who's had a plan to have you be a part of his family since before you were ever born. What about standing out? John was odd. Do we stand out? Are we odd? Are we unusual? Some of you, definitely. Uh, but for the right reasons is what I'm asking about. Here, here's the thing. You say, well, what does this mean? Am I supposed to go and, you know, dress in camel's hair and go down by, you know, the stadiums and wave a sign and shout into a bullhorn? No. Uh, okay, I'll uh, just get that out of the way. Standing out doesn't mean that you become obnoxious. And Peter, I mentioned this last week, Peter talks about um, always being prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within Yet do this with, what were the words? Remember? Gentleness and respect. No one has ever accused a bullhorn of being gentle or respectful, okay? However, being a follower of Jesus means by definition that you are called out of the world. John says you're in the world, but you're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. So being a Christian means you're going to have different values. You're going to have different ideals. You're going to have different practices. Yeah, it might even affect the way that you dress and the food that you eat, like John. 
There's an example in Philippians 2. I love this. You guys, there's this, there's this, uh, the apostle Paul's writing in Philippians 2, and he talks about, he, he gives some advice on how to be innocent in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he says, you want to you shine like a star? Like in the dark night, you're just going to pop. You're going to be really odd. You're going to be really different. You're going to stand out from the generation. Do you know what he says to do? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And if you look really closely, it says, on Facebook, uh, right? He's like, you really want to stand out? You really want to be weird? You want to be different? You want to shine like a star? Stop grumbling and complaining and fighting with people. I would love, I would love that, Aaron, you are so darn peaceable. It's yet to be said of me, but I'm praying someday. Aaron, you're just so peaceable. Like, why, what is wrong with you? Why are you so, well, i I. I worship Jesus. And he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Do you stand out? Is your life different? Not weird or off-putting. Maybe weird or off-putting. I don't know. Some people are going to be mad at you because you hold different values than the, the world around us. Are we fearless like John? We're called to courage as Christians. Whether it's religious leaders the, the non-believers around us, people are going to say things, people are going to question you, people are going to uh, uh, attack you. Psalm 27, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The book of James, it says, what can a man do to me? What, are they going to mock you? They mocked Jesus. They mocked John. They mocked the disciples. People have been, disciples have been being mocked for a couple thousand years. It's nothing new. Oh, they're going to fine you? They're going to lock you up? That's, that's been happening too. Either God will send an angel to get you out or you'll die in prison, whatever. Oh, are they gonna, they're going to kill you? They've been doing that for a couple thousand years too. And then you know what? You get to go be in paradise with the Lord and on the last day, raised from the dead. New heavens, new earth, perfect body, no more sickness, death, crying, cancer, none of that. The future is very bright for a Christian. And yet we forget that all the time. Living for the moment, living for the day, living for the approval of others. Be honest. How many of you struggle with living for the approval of others when you already have the approval of your heavenly father. If you are in Christ, then what the father said about Jesus is true about you. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased, God says. The Lord, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. I don't have anything to be afraid of. Are you courageous? Or is there fear of man? Do you know your role? 1 Corinthians 12. I mean, we spent a few months uh, uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, looking at, uh, you know, spiritual gifts and our part and our role in, our, in the body. Variety of gifts, the same spirit, varieties of service, the same Lord, varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Do you know your gifts? Do you know your role? We have not, we, we really do not want to have a one-size-fits-all approach to Christian service and life. You have a role to play. You have a role to play here within the, the gathered body. You have a role to play in the scattered body. Are you, are you serving? Are you contributing? Just because that sermon series is over uh, doesn't mean that you can't still take the spiritual gifts test or meet with a pastor or meet with a community group leader or talk about it with your spouse. That's, that's a conversation starter, not the, the final word on it. What if there's someone sitting in the row right in front of you that needs the gift that God put into you and you leave today without using it? Do you know your role? John knew his role. Hey, I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna do other things. I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna go to the temple and flip over tables. I'm not gonna travel around the countryside. I'm gonna go set up shop at the Jordan River. I'm gonna baptize people and keep watching for the Messiah. That's his role. That was his job. I'm gonna eat some bugs while I do it, Right? That was John's role. He knew his role. Do you know your role? Do you know your identity? Where is your identity based? Mother, father, employee, employer, business owner, 
Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, what, what, whatever it is that you have your identity based upon, if anything goes deeper than son or daughter of the Most High God through Jesus Christ, that you've got something out of order. Who are you? Who are you? In 1 Peter, Peter, the Apostle Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, he, he says, you are, that's identity language, a chosen race, so that means if your skin color or your racial identity goes deeper than Christian, you have something out of order and you need to repent. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Did you know that Christians are a nation? So right now, there are Christians in North Korea that we are part of a holy nation with. And let me say this. If you more fundamentally identify as American than you do as Christian, you have something out of order in your identity. Man, I got all sorts of awkward in here right now. It's just Peter. I'm just delivering the message. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you know you were in darkness? Did you know that you've been called out into marvelous light? Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Anybody here happy that you've received mercy? Man, what, a, what an amazing thing. Who are you? I am a mercy receiver. Because I was a royal screw-up, and then I met Jesus, and he just happens to love royal screw-ups, and I'm really happy about it. That's your identity. That's who you are. Rodney Whitaker, a scholar and commentator, says, since our identity like that of the Baptist is most truly seen in relation to Christ, how does our life, our relationships, and responsibilities flow from our relation to God? What would we say if asked, who are you and why are you doing what you're doing? Number six, are we humble? Are we humble? And this is where people are like, can we just end the message right now? Are we humble? 1 Peter 5.5 5 says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I think to myself, I do not want to be in an oppositional relationship with the God who created the universe. And yet I choose pride every single day. No one can truly say that they're humble, right? That's what it's like a, one of those catch-22s, right? I am humble and proud of it, right? Like you can't, you can't do that. So maybe the better question to ask is, are you growing in humility? Are you aware of the areas where you're still, even if you've been following Jesus for many years, you're still on a daily basis in need of his grace? Old Puritan preacher J.C. Ryle says, I love what he says. He says, if we profess to have any real Christianity, let us strive to be of John the Baptist's spirit. Let us study humility. This is the grace with which we must all begin who would be saved. You can't, you can't get saved without having some humility. I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. We have no true religion about us until we cast away our high thoughts and feel ourselves sinners. And then he says, not, not all of God's children have gifts or money or time to work, or a wide sphere of usefulness, but all may be humble. This is the grace, above all, which will appear most beautiful in our latter end. Are we growing in humility? And then lastly, number seven. Do we proclaim Jesus? Do we herald the good news of the gospel of Jesus? We all are evangelists. You are all evangelists. You are. It is not a weird thing. It is a completely common and normal thing to talk about and to share that which you love. If you love a particular recipe, if you love a particular restaurant, if you love a particular band, a particular record, if you love a particular person, if you love a particular fitness regimen, whatever it might be that you love, it is natural to talk about it. It is natural to share it. I simply want to ask you, dear Christian, dear follower of Jesus, do you proclaim Jesus? Is your life most known for that? It's not a wrong thing or a bad thing to talk about your whole 30 or whatever thing you're doing while you're miserable about, right? (laughs) 
you probably need some help and some support. We love you. Let's, let's, let's cry together, right? It's not a bad thing to talk about your favorite restaurant, your favorite, none of those things are wrong. But again, where's Jesus in that picture? And if you never proclaim Jesus, what does that say about the love that you have for him versus the fear that maybe you've allowed to take place in your heart? Do we proclaim Jesus? Going back to Spurgeon again, I'll close with his words. Vain will it be to have argued with accurate logic and persuaded with lofty rhetoric unless we have uplifted Christ among the people. It will be idle to say, well, I preached against the skepticism of the times. I have rebuked the sins which raged around me and have proclaimed what I knew of the glory of God in nature and in providence. For our chief and distinguishing work is to declare the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of his precious blood. Amen to that? As the stars called the pointers always point to the pole star, so must we also point to the Redeemer. See, John's not that unusual. John serves as a model for us to follow. And I ask and I I pray that God would send his Holy Spirit right now to stir in us. I'm not even talking about us as individuals, but us corporately as Sound City Bible Church. Should the world still be around hundreds hundreds of years from now, my prayer is that they would say, yeah, Sound City Bible Church proclaimed Jesus. This church is not about us. Sound City is not about Sound City, amen? Sound City is about Jesus Christ. I love this church family. I love, I really love you. When I talk to people about our church, whether they're Christians or not, when I go to pastor's lunches or conferences, I talk so affectionately about our church. I really love you. I have a ton of affection for you and for this church in my heart. But at the end of the day, I ain't inviting people to a church. I'm inviting them to meet Jesus Christ. And may it be said, about each of us as individuals and about us as a church. God, I ask and I pray that you would stir in us a a kind of grounded identity, a, a grounded knowledge of our calling and our role and a courage like John the Baptist, that we who are Christians would would seek to point to Jesus, get the attention off of us and to point to Jesus in all that we do and say. God, if there's anyone here today who's not yet a follower of Jesus, I I ask and I pray that they would hear. the the call of John the Baptist to take a look at Jesus, the one who takes away the sins of the world. God, maybe someone has been like a John the Baptizer to them of, of calling them and inviting them. And so God, I ask and I pray that you'd give them the faith and you'd give them the courage to take that first step to say, I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need mercy. I want to get in on that incredibly bright future that was talked about. God, I pray that you do all of these things for your glory and we get to experience joy in it. Amen. I want to invite us to a time of response, church family. We're going to respond as we do in a few ways. The first is through uh, giving of our offerings. And I will always remind you, we don't give uh, to try to strong arm to get something out of God. We don't give out of just obligation and duty. We give as worship to God because he's given us his very best. So they'll be collecting the offering from the back. If you want information on how to give online or text to give, that's up on your screen. Uh, if you're a guest or visitor, there's no obligation to give. Please don't feel guilty about that. And we're going to welcome our younger students class in to join us for this time of response and, and worship. While they're collecting the offering and then they are going to hand out the elements for communion here, let me read a few discussion questions to help us this week in our small groups, in our homes. How does knowing that your life has divine calling and purpose help you to be fearless? How does it help you to be humble? Is your life unusual? in those right ways that we talked about, or does it just kind of look like the rest of culture? How does your identity, that deepest sense of who you are, rest on Jesus? And how does God want to root you more deeply in Jesus? And then number four, where does your life serve to point others to Jesus? Where specifically do you have opportunities to grow in this area? And then some things to pray about. Pray that we would follow the example of John the Baptist in humility, courage and confidence in our calling and identity, and then pray that our lives would lovingly and boldly point people to the gospel of Jesus. As they begin handing out the elements for uh, communion in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And I'll say this, this is for believers. If you're a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor from another church, you're welcome to join us at the table. If you're not a Christian, I would just put before you two things. Number one, you can abstain 
and just reflect on these words that, that we're about to read from the scripture and the songs we're about to sing. Or I would say even better, trust in Jesus and join us at the table for the first time. So while they're handing out the elements, I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11. This is, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me just pause right there for a second. When we take this bread and this cup today, we get to follow in the pattern and example of John the baptizer and say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, this is a, a simple cracker, a little cup of juice, but it points to the deepest reality imaginable that God sent his son to die for our sins. And then there's an opportunity to reflect. Whoever therefore eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, this is an opportunity to prayerfully ask God, is there fear? Is there a misplaced identity? Am I, am I, am I just needing to come to you in, in repentance and receive your grace? Examine, reflect. We're going to, I'll invite the musicians to come. We'll take a moment and we'll, we'll just play instrumentally and allow you a minute to just kind of reflect and to pray and to seek the Lord. And then uh, when the time is right, we'll invite you to stand and, and sing with us. This first song we're going to sing talks about persevering. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Some of you need to grow in your fearlessness and your courage like John the baptizer. Whatever it might be, I invite you to prayerfully reflect on that and then we'll stand and we'll sing together in just a moment. God, I I thank you for this time in your word. God, I thank you for the witness of John the baptizer. I I pray, Lord God, that we would, um, in the the spirit of John, we would grow in courage and and fearlessness and in love and in our identity in you. And God, I ask and I pray that during this time here now of reflection and, and prayer and repentance and singing, God, that you would stir in our hearts to respond to you as you want us to do. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.